So welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Potida Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica. Today we have a really exciting lineup of nominees from the Bessie Awards, which are coming up in October. Our first guest in this series is Caleb Teicher, who is an acclaimed NYC-based dancer and choreographer specializing in American dance traditions. He's a 2011 Bessie Award winner for Outstanding Individual Performance and one of Dance Magazine's 2012 25 to Watch, also a 2011 Young Arts Silver Medal winner in dance, and has been featured by NPR Music, Interview Magazine, Vogue, Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, and many other publications. Caleb first received critical and audience acclaim as a founding member of Michelle Dorrance's Dorrance Dance, as well as performing with The Bang Group, The Chase Brock Experience, Sally Silvers and Dancers, and on tour with West Side Story. Since founding Caleb Teicher & Co. in 2015, Teicher's artistic reach has expanded to commissions from Works in Process at the Guggenheim, Fall for Dance at New York City Center, and several engagements with symphony orchestras, including the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center, as well as many touring engagements with the company's rep. Caleb also continues to engage with local and international dance communities by teaching at tap and swing festivals around the world. So Caleb Teicher was actually nominated for three Bessies for this upcoming award show. The first of which is for Outstanding Production and More Forever, and that was presented at Guggenheim's Works and Process series. The second Bessie nomination is for Sound Design and Music Composition, with his collaborator in More Forever, Conrad Tao. And the third Bessie is for Outstanding Breakout Choreographer, which is quite an impressive array of nominations. And just a little bit about the piece in which he is nominated for Outstanding Production. Works in Process is the performing arts series at the Guggenheim. One of the brightest lights in tap today, so claims the New Yorker. Caleb Teicher and Lincoln Center emerging artist and innovative pianist and composer Conrad Tao collaborated in More Forever, an evening-length work commissioned by Works in Process. On a stage covered by a thin layer of sand, dancers explored American dance traditions such as vernacular jazz, tap, and lindy hop, set to Tao's new contemporary score for piano and electronics. More Forever was commissioned by Works in Process at the Guggenheim and has been supported in part by residencies at the Pillow Lab at Jacob's Pillow Dance, Baruch College through the Cooney Dance Initiative, and Works in Process at the Guggenheim. Since you're nominated for a Bessie for Outstanding Production for More Forever, tell us more about this piece and how did you incorporate sand into the set design and creative process? More Forever is the first evening-length work I made for my company, and I knew when I embarked on what seems to be my biggest project yet, I wanted to choose a collaborator that I felt would keep me engaged and challenged and would open up just kind of new capacities of what I could do. And I looked to Conrad Tao, who was becoming a close friend of mine, but also was just someone who for nearly nearly a decade at that point I had admired from afar. He's, he's really a worldwide phenom as a classical pianist, but I've always been taken by his compositions that are more in the new music or contemporary music scene. 
I just find him to be endlessly interesting and brilliant and emotional. And, and I felt that way about his work as well. So the, the impetus for the project was really a collaboration with Conrad. The Sand specifically was a sonic world, more than an aesthetic world, it was a sonic world that I really wanted to explore. And it seems that with an evening length production, that was the type of space that would have the kind of logistical and administrative and, and financial support to to undergo something that is is kind of complicated to work with. You can't just walk into any stage or any rehearsal studio and just throw down a bunch of sand. That's kind of the last thing that people in New York City want you to do. And truthfully, tap dance plays the floor as its instrument for the most part. So there's always a particular floor that's needed, not just a sprung floor, but a floor that has a particular sound and a particular quality. Adding sand to it and dancing not in metal tap shoes, but in soft shoe or in, in leather soled shoes opens up a sort of different sonic world. It's the equivalent, I guess I could say, between playing electric guitar and playing acoustic guitar. You know, they're, they're the same instrument. You approach it the same way, but you also approach it in completely different ways. And the, and the quality of sounds and the, the emotional experience that you, you have with it is different. It feels different to dance it, but it also feels different to experience it. We did a lot of trial and error, figuring out what was the best way to build a set that could contain sands. And I'd say now a year and a half into presenting this work and, and working on this work, we finally figured it out. Just took a lot of trial and error, but it's, it's good to have a long process for that. But so the way the work started was I want to work with Conrad. I want to work with Sands. I want to make a long work. It'll be about an hour and let's get going. Wow, that's really great. And so amazing that you were literally given the space to be able to use trial and error through a creative process. And I'm curious, what are some examples of some trials and errors with the sand and how were you able to work with it for different types of sound and how did that also incorporate with the style of movement and the movements you were exploring? We essentially made the work with sand in three and a half tech residencies um, that were each about maybe four or five days long. So we did a lot of theorizing in dance studios in New York, wearing our leather shoes, but not using sand and saying, oh, and once we get to use sand, I hope it sounds good, or I hope it sounds like this, or I hope the effect is as such. As a choreographer, you have to do a lot of theorizing because the people aren't available, or you're choreographing in your apartment, or your imagination has to be active enough to say, hey, maybe this thing that I imagine in my mind will look like it when, when it comes to doing it in the show in front of people. Some trial and error, we didn't know how much sand was necessary. We didn't know the quality of sand that we need. Different kinds of sands have different tonal features. Some of them are sharper and higher. Some of them are deeper and have more body. I feel like I'm talking about wine now. You know, people who are into wine say it's a medium body. It's, it's kind of approachable. I, yeah, I've never understood that. but You're blowing my mind. <laughs> yeah, but um, there's, there's a lot to sand. And I now know quite a bit about it. But also we're using sands. The, the interesting thing about sands is that everything has sounds. You know, when you are in a metal tap shoe and you put your foot on the floor and you turn the way you would turn for a pirouette, 
that doesn't have sounds, right? There's no, there's no friction. But when you turn on the ball of your foot and you're on sands, it has the sound of friction of the ball of your foot rotating and essentially grinding the sands or, or turning the sand under your foot. Similarly, for sweeping your foot across the floor, it has a sustained sound. And sustained sounds are not usually accessible in the same way or don't have the sort of sonic impact that they do when, uh, when you're tap dancing in metal tap shoes, the loudest sounds you have are, are plosive sounds, things where you strike the floor. But now some of the loudest sounds when you're dancing on sand are just dragging your foot across the floor, your flat foot across the floor. So it, it really changes a lot. The sounds being different changes the way that you approach the movement. You know, the, the whole pedagogy of tap dance is based around moving a certain way so it sounds a certain way. And of course, one, one enforces the other, etc. But it really actually was a beautiful journey for myself and the dancers to, to get to know sand dancing better. It's sort of a, sort of a, a sub-discipline of tap dancing, dancing on sands, but uh, most of us, for logistical reasons, don't get to spend too much time with it. But it was, uh, it was fun. That's amazing. I had no idea that this was a sub-discipline. Are there artists recently who have worked with sand? Yeah, I mean, I danced with Michelle Dorrance's company for six years, and she did small sections of her work here and there in, in Sands. What is unique about this work from a, a capacity standpoint is that we were not dancing in a small sandbox, which is usually how sand dancing is done. Sand dancing is usually done by one person in one personal space sandbox, meaning four feet by four feet or something like that. So there's not a lot of movement capacity we were dancing in a sandbox that was the size of our whole stage, which is 24 feet by 24 feet, which means you can slide across the space or you can move through space or you can, it's just a, it's a huge sandbox. The reason that people don't usually do that is because it's hard. <laughs> you have to build it, it costs money, it's a lot of wood, it's a lot of sands, and theaters, as soon as they hear that you have sand in your production, get a little nervous because I think they're imagining the Pina Bausch work with the mulch or uh, the Pina Bausch work with the water, or the Pina Bausch work with everything else. Um, <laughs> so the most famous sand dancer, and the one that's definitely worth looking up, or the one that you've heard of before, is Sandman Sims. Mm -hmm. Sandman Sims was uh, one of the forebears, the forefathers of, of American tap dance as we know it, but his main discipline was as a sand dancer, and he developed a whole technique. My favorite sand dancer is, a, is actually a Michigan-based clogger and flatfooter named Nick Garris, who does percussive dances of the North Atlantic, meaning Ireland and England and Scotland, but also the northern half of America and Canada. I guess Canada's in America. Why did I say that? <laughs> um, you, you know what I mean. Anyway, um, but he was a big inspiration for the work, and I actually was able to bring him in to, to work with us, to coach us on our footwork and coach us on our approach to sands. That is amazing. And I really had no idea that typically it's presented in a much smaller sandbox. And so I can imagine how excited you must have been to be able to explore in a much wider space and find different sound textures. Yeah, it was so fun. That's a really great. And I learned something. I really was not familiar with this different side of, of dance. So I am also curious, how did you incorporate your dancers' backgrounds and their dance styles when you were also exploring the sound texture of sand. How did they also add to your collaborative process? Yeah, each of the 
each of the dancers is coming from a slightly different background because all dancers come from slightly different backgrounds. And rather than trying to find a uniform look or sound or approach, I think the thing that's valuable about dance companies or dance work that is coming from a jazz tradition or uh, American dance tradition, American jazz dance tradition, is that we welcome those different backgrounds and perspectives. And the goal is something more akin to a jazz band where each perspective has space to to be heard and and actually the differences within the group allow for a richer experience. I'm thinking of Naomi Funaki, who's one of my dancers, who's frequently in the work, and her approach to the floor is much crisper. She doesn't keep her feet along the floor as much. She has a more vertical approach to dancing than, say, myself or Jabu Graybill. We tend to drag our feet more frequently, and so it has a different sound. Separately, I have two fantastic swing dancers in the company, Nathan Bu and Davita Arce, and they think about dance having musical value but they don't think about qualifying or quantifying their steps as music the way that we do as tap dancers. So they move to music, but their goal is not always to make sound. And so I think what I love about this work so much is that it sort of blurs the boundary that is very clear between dance that is supposed to make sounds and that its main intention is to make sounds and dancing that doesn't want to make sounds or doesn't mean to make sound as its, as its main intention those lines and those differences are just kind of shattered throughout the work. And that's so fun to have a section that feels like you want to hear the composition of the dancing and then other parts of dancing where it's actually just about moving through space. That's amazing. And that must have also been quite meditative because visually you're seeing everything move through space and also the sound of the sand. And usually when I'm watching any dance, I'm also looking for the sound too of the rhythm. Mm. Yeah, that's what I admire so much about Paul Taylor's choreography and Kyle Abraham's choreography and Camille Brown's choreography. Camille's work you can hear more frequently because she mics it in a particular way. But all of those works appeal to me so much because you don't need to hear them, but if you did hear them, they would sound good. I, I think what I love about dancing I love so many things about dancing, but I think what, what I tend to appreciate most about dancing is dancing that seems to also be good music or seems to be dancing that helps me listen to the music in a deeper way. Absolutely. I love that. <laughs> so the Bessies are coming up soon, and I'm really excited to see this year's presentation. What are you most looking forward to? I think it's a really nice moment for me to celebrate my collaborators of course, no, I'm the front man for the group. I, I, I do the podcast interview, but I have such a fantastic team with me. And, and this work was a true collaboration between all of the dancers that came through the work over the year and a half that we've been performing it. We've actually even had some cast changes, but I also have a fantastic lighting designer, Serena Wong, and costume designer, Marion Talon, and a set designer and sound designer. And, and of course, my composer collaborator, Conrad, all these people contribute to the work. And so I've been to the Bessies before. I've actually had the great privilege of winning one before. So for me, I think this is the the thing that makes things exciting is getting to share them with people. I feel that way about life in general. The, the great value of being an artist is getting to share your art with audiences and with your collaborators. So for me, the Bessies will be a 
uh, a nice chance to hang out with my friends and to also celebrate all of the other work that's been made in the New York City dance community this year that has been so fantastic and so different and it's what contributes to a, a really diverse dance scene in New York. Absolutely. And also going back to your piece and your career in general, because you're also nominated for Outstanding Breakout Choreographer, which is really exciting. What are some common motifs and themes that perhaps you work with or even creative processes? And how was that incorporated into More Forever or completely broken? Great question. I try not to be too self-aware of my own work, but I guess it's too late because it's 2019 and we're all painfully self-aware. I think for me, I always want to work with music that moves me in some way, which sounds very obvious, but I think I have trouble working on a, a piece if the music to me feels doesn't feel like a, an idea that can really hold some value as well. For me, choreographing to good music doesn't mean it's jazz or doesn't mean it's, it doesn't mean it's anything in particular. It just means it's some, it does something to my brain that asks me to respond to it with composition and with perspective and with, and with a way of experiencing the music that is embodied. So I'd say a big motif is just dancing to music. It's a pretty big one. I think I try to incorporate a sense of humanity in the work and that I don't want people to act. I want people to be as they are in the moment. So I don't say, now this is the sad section. Make sure you feel sad. Conrad actually brought this quote to me from David Lang, the composer who said that a score is a prompt and it's a prompt that hopefully, I'm totally paraphrasing, a score is a prompt that maybe asks of you to consider feeling the same things that you did last time. So you don't have to. The The goal of performing for me is not to have the same experience each time. The goal for me is to to find it anew each time. So I think for me that ends up revealing a certain kind of humanity that you don't get from trying to play the same narrative each time. And then probably people would say that my work tends to be a little funny. Although I wouldn't say that More Forever is my funniest work or my happiest work or my most optimistic work. I don't want to give anything away or actually tell anyone how to feel about the work. But to me, it's a it's a pretty melancholic work. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And I really love that you're working with everyone and their humanity at the moment. And I'm sure in the rehearsal space, but also in the stage space, everyone obviously is coming with different energies. How do you also work with that? And what has it been like to also re-perform the piece as you have worked on it? Reperforming the piece has been beautiful. We did six performances this summer at Jacob's Pillow, and that felt glorious. I, the, the word I think of is glorious. To, to find the work and to really sit in the work and to find the, to find the corners of the work. You know, when, you, when you've only performed the work maybe two or three times here and there, you, you don't really get to sit in it and, and find it as deeply each time. Working on it for a week at the pillow was a huge blessing to us. And uh, I, felt, I felt like I could live my, live my life through the piece. And I know the same can be said for, for a lot of the dancers. And I don't know, we, it's a pretty diverse group. Our, our youngest dancer is 18. I think he's still in high school, maybe. 
And our oldest dancer is 39. And that doesn't mean anything to me, but that does mean that there's just really different perspectives in the room. Ne never mind that they are dancers of different styles that, uh, you know, they would identify as different styles and different uh, backgrounds. But I think that's, that's the beauty of, of the work that we're doing is that these people inhabit the same space and, and they have much more in common than they do that separates them. So that's really great. And what is on the horizon for you and your company in 2020 and beyond? Beyond, who knows? But in 2020, we actually get to tour more forever quite a bit. We are going to Boston and California at the beginning of this year. I'm actually going to teach in Korea, traveling around a lot. So we get to tour a bit in 2020, which is really nice. It's going to be a slightly quieter first half of the year for us, particularly in New York, because I have a, a new big commission from the Joyce. They've commissioned a really big work from me. So it'll have a two-week premiere at the Joyce in August of 2020. The piece is called Swing 2020, and it is with three, uh, four technically, swing dance collaborators of mine. And we're putting together essentially a massive swing dance show that presents the best of the international Lindy Hop community in the presence. I think we all feel that Lindy Hop or swing dance frequently gets presented with an eye towards nostalgia or flapperdom or vintageness or Gatsby experiences and things like that. But the most exciting and interesting part about Lindy Hop is how relevant it still is and, mm -hmm. and how Lindy Hop is a really beautiful and complicated and complex story of American social life. And so we've put together this work, which has 12 dancers and a 10-piece big band, which is massive. And it'll have a two-week run at the Joyce. So we're kind of laying low, putting that together. And I'll be traveling around with a, a couple of different projects that I have. But next things in New York, I guess, will be that primarily. I'm also, I'm hosting a, an event at the Guggenheim for Works in Process. I should, I should plug December 9th of this year and it's a holiday concert of sorts and uh, Conrad, my composer collaborator will be working with me so will Chris Solis who's another composer collaborator of mine Ben Folds is joining us and it's actually going to be in the rotunda and then A.L. Vilner's big bands will play two sets of swing dance music and people will get to swing dance in the Guggenheim rotunda which is a pretty beautiful space to be social dancing in yeah very cool and really exciting about your Joyce two-week presentation. That is amazing. Yeah, I'm stoked. And so final question about the Bessies. Do you have your speech prepared? I don't. And when I, when I won the Bessie in 2011, I really messed up because I really didn't think that I was going to win. It seems like it's still hard for me to believe that I did, but I didn't prepare anything because I... I knew I wasn't going to win. And then I did. And then I got up there and I mumbled my way through a minute. So probably at some point before October 14th, I will prepare something in the, in the unlikely scenario that, that I do have to say something. I'm also hoping actually that maybe my composer collaborator, Conrad will say something because he is also nominated. Right. So I'd prefer that he speak. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Great. Thank you so much for speaking about your experience. And we're so excited to celebrate you and all the other artists at the Bessies. Thanks for having me.